The following is a presentation of the Force Center podcast feed. Hi there, and welcome to Happy Beeps. I am your host, Jennifer Landa, and for today's show, we're going to Galaxy's Edge. Picture it, 14 acres on the planet of Batu. The Black Spire outpost is off the beaten path and has become a haven for smugglers, adventurers, and criminals. The Black Spires of the outpost are petrified, towering trees that cover the planet's terrain. There are also two main attractions, a marketplace where you can buy Star Wars plushes, and a cantina restaurant where you can dine. And if you're in Florida, don't get me started on the Star Wars Luxury Hotel. It's all coming in 2019 to both Disneyland in Anaheim and Walt Disney World in Florida. Are you excited? I'm excited. But as more news recently came out about Star Wars Land, I found myself feeling a sense of dread. Like Eeyore... I had a cloud hanging over my head every time I thought about this new, incredible Star Wars theme park. I wasn't sure what this was about until I realized I've been waiting for this park for 35 years. How will it possibly live up to that many years of my expectations? Will Galaxy's Edge be better than my wildest imagination? Or will my expectations and those long lines put a damper on my in-park experience? I really didn't know where to begin, so I called my dad. I was just going to ask you some questions. Yes, ma'am. So I wanted to get a picture of like what Disneyland was like when it first opened. Well, I happened to be there in '55, <laughs> but I just got to remember it's been a long time. Walt Disney's original inspiration for Disneyland came from his own experience at amusement parks. He wanted to create a clean and fun place for both kids and adults to have a good time. And in the 1950s, there really wasn't any place like that. I, I think that was mainly because, as you know, Walt's thing was that he had, he had grandchildren like, like I have. And so he'd take them to little rides and stuff, but there wasn't much available for little kids. So I remember when I was little, there's amusement parks were very small, and they had just a few rides, and yeah, it wasn't much to them. Before Disneyland opened on July 17, 1955, film producer Walt Disney wanted to get the public interested in his new amusement park. So on March 29, 1954, Disney signed a deal with ABC to produce a television program called Walt Disney's Disneyland. Walt Disney's Disneyland. When you wish upon a star at this point in time, the Disney brand was already known for its magical movies and, of course, characters like Mickey Mouse. But the weekly Disney TV show? Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. It was kind of like a drumbeat every week, you know. And by the time it opened, I mean, everybody is crazy. I mean, adults, too, obviously. In addition to Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney, the man, was the face of his company. 
So it made sense that he hosted the TV show, giving audiences a sneak peek at what his amazing amusement park would be like. I can imagine that if I was a kid or even an adult watching the show in the 1950s, I'd feel like Walt was my friend telling me about his latest project that I should come see. It would not only drum up my excitement, but it might also make me feel like I was a part of the magic. So of course I'd have to be there on opening day. In the very first episode of Walt Disney's Disneyland, he actually did a little presentation on the park, complete with maps and models. Disneyland, seen from about 2,000 feet in the air and 10 months away. I want to tell you about it because later on in the show, you'll find that Disneyland the place and Disneyland the TV show are all part of the same. Now on a site of uh, 240 acres near the city of Anaheim in Southern California, right about in here, we've begun to build Disneyland the place. We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. A fair, a amusement park, an exhibition, a city from the Arabian Nights, metropolis from the future. In fact, a place of hopes and dreams, facts and fancy, all in one. Walt then showed a scale model of Disneyland's Main Street, and it looked almost identical to the way it looks today. Walking down old-fashioned Main Street was supposed to make guests feel like they were stepping back in time to the turn of the century. At this time, Little Main Street was still the most important spot in the nation, combining the color of frontier days with the oncoming excitement of the new 20th century. At the end of Disneyland's Main Street is the plaza. This is the circular area where the Mickey and Walt statue are today. It's by the Carnation Plaza restaurant, which has fantastic fried chicken. Mm. I'm sure you've seen lots of crowds of people taking selfies and photos with Mickey and Walt, and also because the plaza gives guests the perfect view of the Sleeping Beauty castle. The plaza, or the hub, is the heart of Disneyland. Shooting out from here, like the four cardinal points of the compass, Disneyland is divided into four cardinal realms. Adventureland, Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, and Frontierland. Each of the four lands were featured in episodes of the Disneyland TV show. The episodes acted like a teaser for the park and also gave the audience a sense of what life would be like if you lived in one of those lands. The episodes were a mix of scripted shows like Davy Crockett, Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, Green estate in the land of the free, or documentaries about, say, an expedition in the Galapagos Islands. Coffer, the other half of the camera team, is recording the amazing story of the giant land tortoise, putting on film the life history of a rare and all but extinct specimen. During the production of the Disneyland show, they had up to 30 camera crews around the world filming stories that would be later featured in their Adventureland-themed episodes. The Adventureland series exposed kids and their parents to different cultures and traditions around the world. Over the years, Disney has had some problematic characters and storylines that were racist, stereotypical, and offensive. That being said, the footage shown in the Disneyland episodes that I watched was surprisingly educational, and it actually took more of a neutral tone like, say, National Geographic. The Tomorrowland series touted that it would show audiences the designing, building, and launching of the first passenger-carrying rocket ship into outer space. 
while the Fantasyland series featured animated cartoons starring Mickey Mouse or the very racist Song of the South cartoon. The Disneyland TV show became must-see TV, and it led to a successful spinoff of the Davy Crockett miniseries. And Davy Crockett was really a big deal, because I know I had a Davy Crockett hat, and I think I had a, a flintlock gun. My dad grew up in Los Angeles, but clearly, Disney was working its magic on kids all across the country. There was a lot of hype leading up to the opening of the park. So when the big day finally arrived, what was the experience like? Well, my dad couldn't remember his initial thoughts, it was a long time ago, but he said that the park felt very open, mainly because there weren't many trees. They hadn't grown yet. There's actually a story in the LA Times about the disastrous opening day of Disneyland, how rides broke down, restaurants ran out of food, and women's high heels got stuck in the fresh asphalt. Traffic was backed up for seven miles on the five freeway. Ronald Reagan, who was one of the television broadcast hosts, was forced to scale the wall of Frontierland to make one of his scheduled appearances. And Walt Disney, he got locked out of his apartment above the fire station and couldn't get out. Opening day couldn't get any worse. And as a result, Walt Disney and his amusement park were criticized by the press. You know who didn't care? Kids in the 1950s like my dad. As he put it, there wasn't a lot of competition in those days. The, oh, oh, I remember my grandfather would take me. This was like in Pico Rivera. They had this little place. She had a miniature train. That was cool. Maybe a little Ferris wheel. And a few other little rides. Maybe a, a mini roller coaster. And that was about all you could do with a kid. That was about it. And I think that's what uh, Walt Disney experienced, and he was saying, it's got to be better here. Would you rather go to a rinky-dink local fair with a Ferris wheel as a main attraction, or would you rather go to Disneyland? All you'd need is a ticket in hand, and you could fly like Peter Pan, whip around the Matterhorn in a bobsled, or take a cruise through the jungle. In those days, you'd purchase an admission ticket to the park at the main gate, and then once inside, you'd purchase a value book with coupons labeled A through E. An e-ticket got you a ride on the park's most popular attractions. The e-ticket, of course, was the most prized because that was like uh, Peter Pan, I believe, or, or Alice. Or, um, that was the e-ticket. Wow. And then the A would be like a streetcar. A streetcar mm -hmm. isn't like the ones that go down Main Street streetcar or yeah, like just, a Topia streetcar? No, just the uh, Main Street. Oh my gosh, you had to buy a ticket for that. Yeah, it should be like an A ticket, but it wasn't very much. Right. Or the horse pulled uh, trolley, whatever it was, or, or the train. So those would be like A and B, and maybe the Autopia would be more like an E ticket. My dad has a lot of happy childhood memories about his days at Disneyland. And because I grew up 10 minutes away from the park, I do too. My dad was a reporter for many years, so back in the 80s and 90s, he had what's called a silver media pass. Oh man, those were the good old days. His pass meant that he could get himself and three other people into the park for free. Anytime. Back in those days, 
Disney used to wine and dine the media, throwing special events like during Christmas time when they'd have a six course dinner at the Carnation Plaza. Oh my gosh, I remember one year, I mean, I was a child, I had 24 karat gold flakes in my soup. It was insane. They certainly don't cater to the media like that anymore. And I think they did away with the silver pass to the press, pretty sure. My dad used to love taking me to Disneyland, but I have two very special memories when I tagged along with my dad for the ride openings of Star Tours and Splash Mountain. I remember both of those openings, and Indiana Jones actually, very vividly. Even though Splash Mountain opened two years after Star Tours, I will tell you that experience first. It was wet. I remember being, I think, the only kid there amongst a sea of reporters. There really wasn't much of a line, but we did have to wait a little bit to get on the ride. And with the exception of the troublesome Song of the South elements in the background, my dad and I loved the ride. But we got soaked. I recently read that that was not supposed to happen, and so they actually had to retool the ride so that guests didn't get drenched. This might explain why I, the only kid around, was thrilled to get soaked and had to get on the ride again, and again, and again. By the third and fourth time, I was literally the only person in that log because no one else wanted to get wet. It was a kid's dream. Star Tours was much different because it wasn't just a ride. It was an experience. Star Tours opened in 1987, which was only four years after Return of the Jedi. As a young fan, I couldn't believe Disneyland would have a Star Wars ride, and it would thankfully replace that boring adventure through inner space. Star Tours was a first attraction that was based on a non-Disney licensed intellectual property. Now, I don't remember how much I knew about Star Tours before tagging along with my dad at the media event, but what I do remember is that the opening was packed. Unlike Splash Mountain, I do remember seeing a handful of kids, but the adults were just as excited. And when I rode in that Star Speeder 3000 with Rex as my bumbling pilot, I felt like I was in a Star Wars movie. It was incredible. I remember walking out of the ride and seeing those Star Wars travel posters on the wall, and I turned to my dad and said, let's go on it again. So we did. I rode it, I think, four or five times, but every time the ride was packed. And every time people would walk off that ride giddy with delight. Star Tours was obviously a fun ride, but what made it so special is that for adults, it tapped into their nostalgia of the Star Wars films. And for kids, it made you feel like you were living out a Star Wars fantasy. When I think about Galaxy's Edge, I think about my first time on Star Tours and how revolutionary that experience was for me. I had never been on a ride like that where I actually felt like I was experiencing something out of a movie. Disney spent $32 million on that ride and George Lucas and his team at ILM worked in conjunction with Disney's Imagineers. So here we are, 31 years later. How are Disney and Lucasfilm going to wow fans now? With virtual reality experiences and augmented reality experiences, realistic looking video games, and so many different kinds of entertainment today, how will Disney compete for our attention and our money? 
let's take the Millennium Falcon ride. For that, Disney is building an ultra-high-res flight simulator for the ride, which will be powered by eight daisy-chained high-end NVIDIA GPUs. GPU stands for Graphics Processing Unit, and a GPU renders images, animations, and video for the computer screen. What makes this technology so amazing is that it renders computer graphics realistically and in real time. So if you look at Star Tours, it has a set number of scenes that have been turned into video clips. These video clips coordinate with a limited amount of storylines that can happen on that ride. On the Millennium Falcon ride, when you pilot the ship, you are actually interacting within a CGI world that will be created and changed based on what you do during the simulation. The ride is being done in partnership with Lucasfilm's ILM XLab, NVIDIA, and Epic Games. Talk about revolutionary. There have been some rumors that they are tweaking the interactivity of the ride. Supposedly, there are six seats inside of the pilot compartment, and the ride cycle is three and a half minutes. Not much time. There are seven pods running in operation at all times, so that means 42 people are piloting the Falcon at one time. You won't be able to crash the ship, but you could cause some serious damage, which might affect you as you walk about Galaxy's Edge later on. More on that in a minute. Rumor has it that all of the six people in the cockpit have to perform individual roles in order to get the ship to fly. This has caused some problems in test runs because it requires excellent teamwork and communication. And if you have a group of people who are strangers and they don't work well together, your ride experience could really suck. So according to the rumors, they are supposedly having to retool just how interactive this ride will actually be. But after watching the test footage that they showed of the ride, it looks so cool. I don't, I don't care. I just want to get on it. What I will care about are the long lines because you know there are going to be lots of them. Hours-long lines for the Millennium Falcon ride, the cantina, the bathroom. It's honestly the biggest thing I'm dreading because as a parent of a toddler, I usually only have two hours max to spend at the park, with or without my daughter. It also makes me sad because... I know that unless a miracle happens, I probably won't be able to go to Galaxy's Edge until a few months after it's opened. Disney knows the lines are going to be out of control, which is why there will be a lot of other things to entertain guests. In addition to the Millennium Falcon ride, there is a second ride that will make guests feel like they're inside a hangar bay in the middle of a battle between the First Order and the Resistance. Disney is building two giant adats for this attraction, Again, long lines. But one cool thing Disney has already been testing out in the parks is roaming droids. As of October 2017, there was a new droid, JFK3, that rolled through Tomorrowland in Disneyland. The droid beeped, wheeled around, posed for photos. Could this be a test for things to come? I'm guessing yes. Disney has confirmed BB-8 will be in Star Wars land, and I can't wait to stand in line and take his picture. Going back to the what you will do will have consequences thing, at a Star Wars celebration panel last year, the group of Imagineers leading the Galaxy's Edge project shared that if you made poor choices on the Falcon ride, 
when you step into the cantina, you may find yourself on the wrong side of the local crowd. Your reputation, or rather the actions you've taken on the rides, will be tracked and cataloged by Disney's Magic Band technology. Magic Bands are available at Walt Disney World, and you can use it to enter the parks, unlock your Disney Resort hotel room, and buy food and merchandise. It also gives you FastPass access. But what I find most interesting is the idea that the technology will be used in coordination with cast members, specifically the performers in the park. If I dent up the Falcon and then walk into the cantina, will an Aqualesh accost me? Will a Rodian tell me in Hades that Jabba's put a price on my head? Maybe. The idea that Star Wars Land could be like Westworld, it frightens me. I don't want my bad choices to haunt me as cast members follow me around the park. Thankfully, it's Disney, so I'm sure it won't be scary. Unless it's like the Black Cauldron. Gosh, I don't like that movie. Walt Disney wanted Disneyland to be an immersive experience. So it makes sense that this new incarnation would take his vision even one step further. Back in 2014, Disneyland did a test run of an interactive game in the park. It was called The Legends of Frontierland, and the game took place in, well, you guessed it, Frontierland. In that simulation, citizens of Frontierland and Rainbow Ridge were in a feud, and guess how to pick a side? Guess how to earn money by delivering telegraphs or capturing fugitives? Quotation marks. Once you got some money, you could purchase a plot of land for your side and help them take over the territory. The game reminds me of those murder mystery dinners where you interact with a bunch of actors in a giant game of improv. While the game worked with a small group in Frontierland, I can't imagine that you'd be able to scale the game to accommodate all the guests in Galaxy's Edge. So maybe they'll pick random guests to have their storylines acted in the park? Hmm? As much as a Westworld Star Wars land would creep me out, I do love the idea of someone at the cantina knowing my name. Can we talk about the cantina for a moment? Oga's Cantina is the name of the bar we've all been anxiously waiting to hear more about. The cantina is run by Oga Gara, who is an alien proprietor, and the bar has become a local watering hole where shady business is conducted, and you might encounter a friend or a foe. According to the Disney Parks blog, while at the cantina, you never know when a stormtrooper or a familiar face will show up. This immediately reminded me of Goofy's Kitchen, where if you go during their character breakfast, you will get Pluto or Princess Jasmine to come to your table while you're in the middle of eating your peanut butter and jelly pizza so they can sign autographs and take photos with you. I could also see it like maybe every hour, a stormtrooper comes in, interacts with a guest, and plays out some scene related to something that happened on the Falcon or First Order ride. This would actually be a much easier way to manage the interactivity aspect in the park, and it would also limit the interaction to only one or two minutes. Remember, costume characters can only do 20-minute sets, so they can't get stuck doing a really long improv for 10 minutes with just one guest. If you look at the more recent concept art for the cantina, it definitely has a grittier feel to it than what they first showed. Does anyone remember that? There was a concept art of like that creature or person in the tank behind the bar. Just me? 
What's funny is that this new concept art looks like a more elaborate version of the scum and villainy cantina bar in Hollywood, which is a pared down version of the Moss Eisley cantina. And like the scum and villainy cantina and the Moss Eisley one as well, Oga's cantina will serve alcohol. This marks the first time, besides Club 33, that alcoholic beverages will be available inside the park. Nerdist Amy Ratcliffe got confirmation from a Disney Parks representative that the cantina will serve an innovative menu of non-alcoholic and alcohol-based custom cocktails, along with beer and wine options. I, for one, am thrilled that there will be blue milk for my daughter and some Alderanian wine for me. But not everyone is happy with this decision. Some fans are concerned that alcohol will cause some guests to become rowdy. Others believe it goes against Walt's original vision for the park. Walt wanted Disneyland to be different from a typical amusement park like, say, Coney Island, where drinking was also kind of an attraction. It clearly was an image thing for Walt, because when the first event was held at Disneyland on July 13th, where celebrities and investors were invited, the bar on the Mark Twain was open, and so was the Golden Horseshoe. In fact, backstage and for special events in the park, alcohol has often been served. I once worked a special event in Frontierland, actually where Galaxy's Edge is now located, and many of the guests there were sloshed. They're, they were all super nice to us characters, um, and it was a lot of fun. But I can tell you, they were, they were drunk. They were drunk. The point is, alcohol has been a part of Disneyland, both backstage and now on stage with Disney's California Adventure, where you can have a glass of wine or a martini in that park. I completely understand why some fans are concerned about drunk guests ruining everyone else's experience, but I do think the fact that the cantina will be more like a restaurant, less like an actual dive bar, will help keep guests in check. I'm also sure the drinks will be expensive, and since there will be a wait, guests won't feel so comfortable hanging out for hours throwing back, you know, cocktails. And just to make it extra clear to guests, the Disney Parks blog said that the cantina adheres to a strict code of conduct that tries to keep its unruly patrons in check. I'm sure that code of conduct will be enforced in the story and in real life if any guest has one too many Coruscant coolers. This is all just the tip of the iceberg, or ice cube, as it were. I have been waiting for Star Wars Land ever since I saw Return of the Jedi, so I can't believe that all these years later, it's finally happening. Unlike when Disneyland first opened, there's no real need to hype up Galaxy's Edge. Information has slowly trickled out, giving us small doses so we don't gorge ourselves on Star Wars theme park deliciousness. Instead of Bob Iger doing a Star Wars Land TV show, we now get transcripts of his conference calls to investors. The publicity vehicle for the park are actually all the Star Wars movies themselves, particularly the new ones and the novels and the comics, which are now all incorporating the world of Batu into their stories. When I set out to do this episode, I genuinely had mixed emotions about the park. Yeah, I'm ecstatic, obviously, but are my expectations too high? Will the crowds, madness in the parking garage, and long lines take away from the Disney magic of Galaxy's Edge? I can now honestly say, 
no. Yeah, all those things aren't fun, and they are the reasons I don't go to Disneyland during the summer anymore. But even after all these years of going to the park, even after five years of working at the park, when I walk down Main Street and hear that Disney music, I smile. And even though I'm no longer a kid, I plan on approaching my first visit with an open heart and mind, just like I would have back in 1983. My daughter loves Disneyland and Star Wars, so seeing her reactions to the park is what's going to actually make it even more special. And that's why I know when I walk through that Galaxy's Edge entrance, hear that Star Wars music, and see the planet of Batuu come to life, it will be a magical moment. I can't wait to go to Star Wars land. Can you? What are your thoughts on the park? How are we going to beat the lines? Share your tips with me at Jennifer Landa, hashtag happy beeps. You can also find me on my Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube channel as Jennifer Landa. Special thanks to my dad for this episode, giving me some perspective on that original Disney opening day. Oh, and also special thanks to Tony Thaxton for our Happy Beeps theme songs. You can find more of his Star Wars songs at patreon.com slash cloudcitysoundtrack. Have him write a Star Wars song for you. Why not? As always, if you'd like to support what we do here at Force Center, check out our site at patreon.com slash Center. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, beep, bop, boop.